John chapter 20, as we continue our study as a church through the Gospel of John, and today come to the Easter story. So yesterday morning, I was uh, Facebooking with um, an acquaintance I have who lives in Australia, of all places, and we were, you know, messaging back and forth, and morning for me, evening for him. And uh, the conversation took a turn toward, you know, topics of faith and Christianity and uh, Easter and things like that. And, you know, he knew that I was a pastor. So at at one point in in our little Facebooking back and forth, he just asked me, he said, may I ask you uh, when and what turned you toward Christ? And, you know, I I thought that was, was kind of a kind thing to ask, you know, I mean, how often does someone just say, hey, tell me why you believe what you believe and how you got there, and, and so he asked me that, and, and, um, and, and I was able to talk a little about that, and I'll share that story with you a little later, but I thought it was an interesting question, you know, why would somebody turn to Jesus, especially today in the modern world, I mean, I mean we, we live in a, a modernized scientific world and Jesus was a guy who lived 2,000 years ago in a pre-scientific, pre-modern, you know, pre-IMAX uh, uh, kind of world, uh, pre-HD, all that stuff. It's so that if we were to go back in Jesus' time today, we'd probably feel very out of place there. And, and yet people today are saying that they follow Jesus or that they're disciples of Jesus. Like, what exactly does that mean? And how do you live as a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus today, if he's not really here. I mean, I understand what his disciples did back in the day. They, he literally walked around, and they literally walked around with him. But like, what does that actually mean for a modern person today, and how does one do that? And, and so, like I said, I found that kind of an interesting question that he asked, and that we sometimes ask. And you can not only take that question at an individual level and say, why would I follow Jesus, or why might you follow Jesus, but... But you could kind of uh, zoom out the Google map, and you can look at that question at kind of a global scale and ask, why are so many people following Jesus today? You know, Christianity is the largest religion in the world. There's uh, over two billion people who would profess the name of being a Christian. And now, do I think that all of those two billion people are really sincere biblical Christians. I mean, of course not. You know, and it's probably true of any philosophy or any view or any religion. You've got the people who really believe it and the people who take the name. But still, that's a lot. And it's not only how many people, but this is what I also find even more interesting, is, is how many people are coming to Jesus today and at the rate. There has been, in the last 100 years, 150 years, this kind of growth spurt in Christianity around the world. The the adherence rate has kind of gone like this. You know, the, the curve has spiked up, which again is interesting. Why is that happening in a modern world? That may sound funny to us because we live here in New England where the curve is going like this. <laughs> you know, where the, the average England, uh, New Englander on a Sunday morning, you're more likely to find at the hockey rink or on the soccer field or in the line at Dunkin' Donuts uh, rather than in a church. Though I've noticed our church has found a way of gracefully combining Dunkin' Donuts with Sunday morning at church. <laughs> Very impressive. Um, but like, like I said, pull, pull back, zoom out, look at the whole world. Look at South America. Look at Central America. Look at 
sub-Saharan Africa, Africa south of the Sahara Desert. Uh, Look at Southeast Asia. And that's where you see there's this incredible growth in modern, today's people proclaiming to be followers of Jesus. I mean, take China as one example. You know, the middle of last century, uh, China went through the, the, the revolution under Chairman Mao and all of the Western missionaries were kicked out of China and there were very few Christians in China, so you probably think, well, it's over. But today, you know, there are, we don't know how many Christians are in China, but estimates are like 80 million, 100 million. You know, it's like once the, the Western missionaries were gone, there, there came this ridiculous growth spurt that happened. And we don't know how many Christians there are because most of them meet in secret churches and house churches to avoid detection from the government. But it's just kind of a strange phenomenon. Why is this the case? Why are there people turning to Christ? Why would modern people consider naming themselves followers of somebody who lived on this earth 2,000 years ago in a very different kind of time and a very different kind of place? It's fascinating, I think, when you really start asking the question. Well, to answer that question, I think you have to go back to the original Story As we wrestle with that this Easter, you've got to go back to the original Easter. To understand why people would follow Jesus today, you've got to know who he was and is. And so you've got to go back to the original narrative itself. And so that's what I want to do today. And as we wrestle with questions like this, you know, it's so easy to try to, to take big questions and come up with complicated answers. You know, why, why do people come to Christ today? And well, let's analyze history and let's analyze sociology and economic trends and political rises and falls. And, and sometimes, you know, the answer is a lot simpler than that. Sometimes there's just a simple answer that gives a better explanation than the convoluted answer. And that's what we're going to find in our story today. There's a simple answer. There's a simple answer to the first Easter and there's a simple answer today. Because when you look back in John chapter 20 at the first Easter, there was a puzzle then too. Just as we are kind of wrestling with this puzzle, there was a puzzle at the first Easter. If you look at the first Easter story, it's pretty simple. It goes like this. There's a mystery, and then there's an explanation. There's a puzzle, and there was a solution. There was a quandary, and then the quandary was solved. And so what was the puzzle back then? Well, the puzzle was simply this. Where did Jesus' body go? That's the puzzle. That's what they were wrestling with. For those of you who are here at the beginning of the service, we read this text. But look at John chapter 20. Here's the puzzle they faced on the first Easter. They said, chapter, chapter 20, verse 1, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So there's the mystery for this week's episode. There's, there's the puzzle to be solved. Where's the body of Jesus? They know a body went into the tomb. Take it back a step. They know Jesus died, right? Go back to chapter 19. If you were here last Sunday, we were studying his crucifixion. And he died. You know, look at chapter 19, verse 18. Let me just show you a few highlights. It says in chapter 19, verse 18, Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side of Jesus, and Jesus in the middle. So Jesus was crucified. And you know, the Romans were really good at crucifixion. The Romans had a high mortality rate for people they crucified. 
They were good at making sure that the people they crucified actually died. That happened to Jesus. He was in that high percentage rate. Look down at verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And without, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That's where we get that phrase, giving up the ghost. He died. Jesus really died. And they made sure he was dead. Look at verse 33. When they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So Jesus really died. And then they really took him, and they really buried him. You know, that's verses 38 to 42, where it says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a secret uh, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. So you got these two characters, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They're both Jewish leaders. They're both very wealthy. And, and they come asking for Jesus' body. Normally, when someone was crucified, what they would do is, well, they might just leave the body on the cross to rot. You know, sometimes they did that. Sometimes, though, they take the bodies down from the cross and they just kind of throw them into a common grave. You know, just pile everyone up in the grave and push the dirt over it. But, but in this case, you have these guys intervening. They're coming sort of out of the shadows as secret disciples and they're coming into the light saying, we'll take the body. And they're, they put the body in a tomb. So, you know, look at verse 40. Taking Jesus' body, they, two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. So they prepare the body. And then verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now we know from the other Gospels that tomb actually belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. It wasn't just kind of like, well, pick a tomb, any tomb. You know, he, he owned the tomb, just like people buy grave plots today. And, and he was a wealthy man, which means that they didn't just put Jesus in the ground, but they actually, like, carved out a kind of cave or a grotto from the rock. So it, it took more money to do that. And there was some kind of bench inside that little cave. So they would have taken the body in, put it on the bench, then they would have rolled a stone in front of the tomb. And we know archaeologically from these, these stones, you know, when you hear stone, don't think like New England field stone. You've got to think like, you know, thousand pound disc that, that was rolled and then in, in front of the doors, archaeologists have found these, are these kind of grooves in front of the doors and the, the, the stone would roll down and kind of drop down into the slot. So he was in there. To get one of these tombs open would take a couple burly dudes, some kind of lever, to get that rock out of the way. So, so that's the setup. Jesus seriously died. They took him down. They wrapped him up. They stuck him in the tomb. They put the stone in front of it. So that gives rise to the mystery in chapter 20, verse 1, where Mary goes to the tomb. Stone's open. Body's gone. Where's the body? Who took it? She's freaking out. She's crying. Could you imagine if, if someone you love died and the funeral home came and took the person you loved and they called you the next day and said, listen, there's been a mix-up. Uh, we don't know where the body is. You know, you'd go bananas. 
You'd go ballistic. You'd be like threatening lawsuits. You'd go down there and screaming. So here's Mary. She's flipping out like that. Like, where's the body? This is our Lord, and someone took his body. So she tells this to Peter, verse 2. She tells it to the other disciple. Who's, who's that? It's John. Right, this is John's way of referring to himself in his own gospel. So rather than John saying, I, when John writes about himself, he calls himself the other disciple or the beloved disciple, the one Jesus loved. And she says, hey, we don't know where he is. So these two guys, they take off for the tomb. They want to see what's going on. Verse 3, Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John wants you to know he's faster. Just... A note for the eternal biblical record. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been folded around Jesus' head. This is common burial practice in those days, right out of the history books. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside And he saw and believed that it still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. You know, verses 3 through uh, 9, they just read like a firsthand account to me. You know, it it, it reads like somebody who was there. It's like, hey, so the ladies came and they said he was gone. So Peter and I took off and we were running the tomb. And I got there first. And then I, I looked inside the tomb and I, was, I didn't go in, but I was checking it out and I saw the claws. And then Peter finally caught up second. And then uh, he like, he like pushed past me and he went in and he's like, oh, there's the face cloth and this. And I thought, well, if he went in, I'll go in too. So we're both in there. And you know what? That's the first time I actually started to believe maybe something else was going on. You know, it just kind of reads like a guy who's telling you the story. But then there's the mystery. Verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes. I mean, what else are they going to do? And Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She's a mess whole thing's a mess. Where's the body? They don't know. And so there's the mystery. There you have it. Where'd the body go? It's kind of a, a question as you look at all the historical evidence for Christ. Where's the body? That's the, the puzzle. And there's been different answers to the where's the body question that you could give. You know, one answer to the question could be, well, uh, maybe the body's actually still there. Maybe they just, I don't know, got the wrong tomb or looked in the wrong place. I mean, it was early in the morning. It was very dark. Maybe she was looking at the wrong place and is actually another place. But, you know, that seems unlikely because even if she made a mistake, this was a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. They had seen where Jesus was laid. So even if there was kind of a mistaken address kind of going on with the tomb, you you know, it's, it's unlikely that would have gone on and on and then given rise to the claim that Jesus had risen. It seems like a kind of thing that could have been solved Pretty quickly, if Joseph of Arimathea is saying, no, 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 God, sorry guys, wrong tomb, it's actually over here. It's cool, he's, he's still there, that's the tomb. Another theory that's arisen is that maybe the authorities, the opponents of Jesus, took the body. The Jewish high priests and his team, or maybe the Roman soldiers, maybe they took the body out. I'm not sure why they would take the body, so you have to figure out a kind of logical motivation for that. But... But maybe that's it. Although that one kind of falls apart too because remember, in a couple weeks, the disciples would go all over Jerusalem proclaiming, he is risen, we've seen him. And, and this whole message of the resurrection would just go viral in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be rocked in just a few weeks. And so theoretically, I mean, this is kind of gross, but 
they could have squashed Christianity in the beginning by just producing the body. And I'm like, so, well, actually, he's not. He's, he's right over there, and you can see it, but there he is. There's the body. Look at the hands, look at the feet, look at the side, look at the face. That's him. And Christianity could have been snuffed out like that. Another theory is, well, maybe the disciples took the body. Maybe that's why there's no one's, you know, sort of found this body. You know, maybe they were like, oh, can't believe he died. But you know what? The movement doesn't have to end. We can carry on. Here's what we'll do. We'll take the body and we'll tell people that he's risen. All right? And then we'll go out and promote that. But just the, just the 11 of us will know. Mary, too. All right, you're in on it, too, Mary. Okay, everybody ready? You know, pinky swear or whatever. And you're not going to tell? You're not going to tell? All right, we're all going to say he rose. Okay, great. You know, let's go out and tell the story. I mean, that's possible, too. Although, if it was a hoax like that, it's kind of strange. Because, you know, people who typically pull off big hoaxes, public hoaxes, they usually do it because they're getting some benefit out of it. You know, Bernie Madoff, right? The guy who made off with (laughs) millions and millions. You know, the reason he did the hoax was because he was making off with the dough. He got something out of it. Typically, people do schemes and Ponzi schemes and confidence games because they're getting something out of it but like what did these disciples get out of a hoax like that imprisonment beatings rejection public scorn from what we know from history all of the disciples except for john died terrible deaths as martyrs so it seems more and more unlikely that guys who've lived a hard life for Jesus would then suffer some terrible death for a big hoax after having been proclaiming the resurrection. Okay, maybe one of them might have bought the lie, or maybe two of them might have gone delusional and believed the lie they made up, but like all of them really dying for a hoax? I mean, you know, it, it starts to really strain credulity. So, you know, it's like, where's the body? What happened? How could they be preaching the resurrection and all these things? It just doesn't seem to make sense. Or maybe there's a simple answer. You know, when all other answers fail, maybe the only one that's left is the one. You know, Occam's razor. I don't know if you've heard of that in philosophy. Occam's razor is the idea that the simplest explanation is often the right explanation. And so maybe maybe it's simple. Maybe it's like he rose. What if he's actually alive? And so that's what Mary found. Look at verse 11. So here's Mary, so now they're gone. Mary's a mess. She stood outside the tomb crying, and she has all these facts in front of her, but she can't see them. She can't see the simple explanation. Her mind is looking for more complex explanations. And there's a simple one right there. As she wept, it says in verse 11, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? I I really don't know what angels look like, but if I was like filming this as a movie, I would make them have a big smirk on their face right here and kind of a twinkle in their eye, like, Hi, Mary, so, you know, why are you crying? You know, and she's like, she didn't get it. Just goes right over her head. They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. You can see the angels kind of nudging each other. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. She had some kind of filter 
some lens for looking at the situation that didn't allow for that interpretation to be possible. She kind of ruled the interpretation out a priori. And so she's looking at him and she doesn't see him. So Jesus asked the same question, verse 15. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Da, 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 da. Who? Thinking he was the gardener. He's like, the gardener? Okay, Whatever. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. It must have been this guy. And finally, I love verse 16. It's just a great moment. It's so sweet and it's so powerful and it's kind of comical. But Jesus said to her, Mary! <laughs> Ta-da! Mary! Hey, it's me! And light dawns on marble head. The light bulb goes off. The, the scales come off the eyes. The, 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 the filter that was keeping her from seeing this potential explanation crumbles. And suddenly the light shines through. The curtain is pulled away. And she cries out, Rabboni, which means teacher. It was all right in front of her. Isn't it funny in life? You know, I'm sure you've had this experience like I have where where you're puzzled by something and something's frustrating, you're trying to figure something out and you're beating your head against the wall and the answer is like right in front of you, but you can't see it because of just the way you're, you're thinking, your mental framework, your, your, the lenses you're wearing as you're trying to interpret data. You, you know, there's data out there and we're trying to make sense of it, but we all look at the world through lenses. Nobody looks at the world in a lens-free kind of way. And, and so we all interpret data through lenses that sometimes filter things out. You know, and, and you walk around going, I don't understand, I don't understand. And then when it finally hits, you're like, oh. It's like I've done well, uh, a few times maybe in my life where I've walked around the house looking for my car keys, and they're in my pocket. <laughs> You've done that, and you know, you're getting madder, and you're kicking furniture, and you're like accusing children of taking things. And then finally you're like, oh, oh <laughs> sorry, my bad. You know, and, and I've even, I actually have even like lost my glasses only to find that someone had put them on my head. And... Uh, it's one of those kind of moments where you suddenly go, why didn't I see this? This was right under my nose the whole time. This was right in front of my face. But for whatever reason, I, I was looking at the world a certain kind of way. I, I sort of had certain uh, predispositions and presuppositions that made me interpret data in a certain way. And, and eventually something happens that shifts your lenses and you start to see in a different way. And it's like, Jesus had kind of clued her into this. I mean, before he was crucified, he had raised people from the dead, like Lazarus. He had said things like, I am the resurrection and the life. He had said, I have authority to lay my body down, my life down, and I have authority to take it up again. And so there, was, there were these clues that, that he uh, could rise and that he could give life and that he was life. He's the way, the truth, and the life, he said. But for whatever reason like all of us, sometimes there's a lot of data out there and it doesn't make sense and we have to kind of shift our lens. You know, I, I think maybe even the story of the resurrection might be kind of a lens-shifting story for us. You know, you look at the story of the resurrection and you go, well, that couldn't happen. Why not? Because people don't come back from the dead. Why not? Because science has never seen anyone come back from the dead. You know, it's like... Okay, so therefore it couldn't happen? Is that before logically it can't happen because you've never seen it happen? You know, but, but what if there's a God? Well, there is no God. How do you know? Science proves it. 
Science can't prove the existence or non-existence of God. All science can do is help us understand the world around us, but it can't tell us where that world came from. There's, there's no scientific way of proving or disproving God. It's a, it's a different kind of question, you know? And if there is no God, well, then, yeah, the idea of someone coming back from the dead is ridiculous. I'll grant you that. But if there is a God, would you grant me the fact that coming back from the dead really is not hard to believe at all, even if it doesn't happen a lot? It's not illogical. It's not irrational. It's not you know, blind faith. And so if you don't believe in God, well, don't you understand, just please understand, your, your non-belief is actually a type of faith in something you cannot prove. And if, so if there's a God, this is possible. Even, you know, I was talking about someone, uh, I'd, I'd heard someone talk about this before and I was talking about it with someone who brought it up to me in the foyer after the first service. But they're saying even people who don't believe in God and just believe in evolution, you know, you keep pushing them. Well, where, where, did, where did life come from? Where did life come from? And finally, if you, if you get way back in evolutionary theory, it's like, well, at some point there wasn't life, and then some you know, crystals or rocks were superheated, and then life came into existence. So it's like, so you believe that there was no life, and then something was alive. That's your scientific theory for how you got to the start of the evolutionary cycles, that there was nothing, and then there was something. Like, so you do believe life can come from non-life, except you don't really have a reason for why. And I, I do have a reason. It's that there's a God. And so ultimately, it comes down to lenses, doesn't it, in the way we look at things. And here's Jesus kind of, it's like he puts the lenses on Mary. It's like he finally gets fed up with it, yanks her lenses off, <sighs> puts new ones on. Mary! <laughs> oh, ah, there it is. It all becomes clear, and it's a different answer that she can now see. She sees him, but she hasn't fully seen him. She's only half seeing. She gets that he's alive, but there's something else about himself that he wants to tell her. There's something else he wants to communicate that we need to understand about Jesus to make the whole picture become clear. Look at verse 17. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me. So he must have like appeared to her, and then she must have you know, kind of done like, you know, wrapped herself around him, like, ah, don't, don't go away, don't go away. Don't hold on to me. I've not yet returned to the Father. Don't worry, I'm not gone yet. Let go, detach. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What's the message from Jesus to Mary? It's that he's returning to the Father. He says to her, I have not yet returned to the Father. And then he says to tell the disciples, I am going to return to the Father, though. So, so as Jesus is coming out of the grave, the thing he wants us to know is that his, his movement out of the grave is just the beginning part of the movement. He is then going to return to the Father. He's going to be exalted. He's going to be the king. And this is so important because if, if you think like, well, what's the message of Easter? And the answer is, well, it's that Jesus is alive. That's kind of the message of Easter. That's not the full message of Easter. It's that Jesus is alive and therefore he is the Lord. That's why his living is important. It's because he's conquered death, he's conquered the grave, and therefore he's vindicated his Lord and he ascends into heaven and he sits as Lord. His resurrection points to his reign. So, so for Jesus, the resurrection isn't just kind of the end of the story. It's the beginning part of the movement. Just as his passion starts with his arrest and goes all the way to his execution and death, 
So now his resurrection is the start of a movement that goes all the way to his enthronement at God's right hand. And in that authority, Christ is alive today and he's still calling people today. He's still summoning people today. That's how the church preached him. Do this. Turn one page. You'll find yourself in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the book that talks about what happened right after Jesus rose and went back to heaven, the resurrection and the ascension. And look how the early Christians preached the resurrection. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Here's the first Christian sermon preached by Peter. And look how Peter talks about Jesus. And notice how he connects the resurrection of Jesus to the lordship and authority of Jesus. So verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. So there's the whole story. Jesus accredited by miracles, Jesus crucified, Jesus raised. Now, why is it important that Jesus was raised? Look at verse 32. Here's where we connect resurrection with reign. Verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life. We're all witnesses of the fact. Verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received the Holy Spirit. And so this is the movement. And the conclusion, verse 36, just to jump down to the end of the sermon, therefore let all Israel be assured God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ or Lord and Messiah. So again, it's not just that he's alive, but it's that his life proves his lordship. You know, he's king. He's Caesar of Caesars. He's Lord of Lords. He's the one who's ruling and reigning. Now, this is so interesting. Look what happens to the people. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what must we do? It's as if as that preaching was going on, the risen authoritative Jesus reached down through those words and grabbed hold of them and said, Mary! You know, it's me. And suddenly they could see him. And their hearts were cut to the heart. And they said, what do we do? Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it's this pattern. This is the pattern by which Jesus is speaking to people today. You know, why, why are modern people turning to Jesus? And, and why is the, the church growing around the world? Is it because the church is really slick and good at recruiting people? Seriously, that's not it. <laughs> you, know, you know, there's some healthy churches in the world, but, you know, churches are messed up, broken things. They're, they're groups of people who've come together in Jesus' name, full of sinful, broken people. I, I've never been to a church that's, that's some kind of slick, perfect machine it's always more like a kind of a quasi-dysfunctional family reunion. No offense, but it, uh, you know, it is. 
And because we're all sinners, you know, being transformed. So it's, it's not that people are coming to Christ today because the church is some wicked, slick recruiting force that's all unified around the world together and controlled by a central planning team. It doesn't work like that. The church is broken and divided and messed up. So why are people coming to Christ? And what if the answer is simple? What if Jesus is alive, he's still alive, he's still reigning, and as, as the gospel and as the story of Jesus is being proclaimed among the nations by an imperfect, fallible, broken church, as that message keeps going out, the, the authoritative living Jesus is still summoning people by name from all over the world. He's still saying Mary, and he's still saying Jeremy, and, and he's calling Ahmed, and he's calling Pedro, and he's calling you know, every, every name and every nationality and every, every people and language. He's summoning people and it, because he's alive. I mean, maybe that's why they're coming is because he's still switching the glasses for people. Maybe, he's, maybe that's what's happening for you, you know? I mean, sometimes we have, we have our whole lives here and all these data points, we're like Mary. And God's given us all these things to look at. He sent people in your life to tell you about him. You've had close calls in your life, you know, and you go, whoo, someone up there is really looking out for me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, well, nothing. Like, no. You should find out who's up there looking out for you. Or people say, oh, there's no coincidences. Amen, thanks. Is like, you know, there's no coincidences, you know, people say. Or I hear people say, you know, everything happens for a reason. You hear people say that? Everything happens for a reason. And it's like, yeah, so take the next logical step. If there's a reason, I mean, if there's a, a rationality, if there's a mind reasoning things, if there's someone planning something, then, then, then there's intentionality. There's a mind. Who's the mind that's reasoning this? You know, just, but, but we kind of stop there. It's like Mary. You know, there's the cloth, the tomb's empty, blah, 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 blah. I don't get it. And there's just that one more step of, Mary, it's me. And suddenly the lenses change and you go, oh, I get it. What if that's how God is reaching people today because Jesus is alive personally speaking to people and summoning them to himself. You know, there's, there's a movement. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. I don't, you, know, you probably won't hear about it on CNN or Fox News, but there's a, a phenomenon that's happening in the Muslim world. And it's really weird, but it's happening all over. And I have some, I have some Muslim friends who've told me about they've had this phenomenon where Jesus is appearing to Muslims in dreams. It's happening all over. It's, it's really bizarre. And he's summoning them. And he's calling them to believe. And in, in places where you couldn't go into the country as a Christian missionary or anything like that, people are coming to faith in Christ. It's just strange. That's how I came to faith in Christ. You know, go back to my original um, Facebook chat with my buddy from Australia when he so, I thought, graciously asked, well, how did you come to Christ? And you know, I, I came to Christ, I, I wish I could remember the exact age, but it was like 11, 12, 13, somewhere in that tweeny stage. And um, I didn't come from a particularly religious home. I couldn't tell you that I grew up in a particular denomination. But, 
But, you know, my parents were trying to get us to church. My mom wanted us to go to church, so we started going to this church. And that's where I first heard all these Bible stories, you know. And I'd never really heard them, but I learned about Jonah and, oh, the fish, and then got eaten, thrown up. Okay. And David, you know, killed that big giant. Oh, okay. You know, and I heard about Jesus, and I heard the gospel that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And I heard that Jesus died and rose again for my sins and that I needed to believe. And, and I was just kind of hearing all these things, and it was interesting. I was kind of taking it in like data points. And then something happened. And I, I'm trying to find the... I, I struggle to describe this experience, but it was as the preacher was preaching Sunday after Sunday and I was hearing these things, I felt as if I was being summoned authoritatively summoned to come and believe in Christ. And, you know, it was, I'm telling you, it was weird. I didn't hear a voice. I didn't have a vision. I didn't have a dream like some of my Muslim friends. I I didn't have any experience like that. I was not going through a hard time in my life. I, I was not having, I was not being bullied at school as a junior higher and was just breaking down and needed to believe in something or anything like that. And even though I was quite a nerd and could have easily been bullied uh, in high school and junior high. Um, you know, I, I was not on medication. My family wasn't pressuring me to believe anything. I didn't have a friend in the youth group who was twisting my arms and giving me the full court proselytization press. It wasn't anything like, like that. I was just hearing this stuff and had this internal sense that, that God was telling me to follow Christ and believe in Him. And it was strange. And I just remember for about a six-month period, so what did I do? What, what do we do when we start getting that sense? We fight it. <laughs> I don't want to say yes to something like that. You know, I, I was a sinner. I was an 11-year-old sinner. And, you know, the only difference between an 11-year-old sinner and a 45-year-old sinner is that I just haven't had as much time to sin. But I still have that fundamental, like, no one's going to tell me what to do, resistance. And, and so I fought. And it, the fight went for about, I don't know, four months, five months, six months, like, wish I could remember how long. It was some period like that. And then finally, what happened was I lost. And, and I, I just came to the Lord, and, and I received Christ as my Savior. And, and it's because it was kind of like I was hearing the message. I heard all the data and everything. And then at some point in the process, he began a six-month period of every Sunday going, Jeremy, Jeremy, and like, ah, oh, trying to force these glasses on me. And he called me to himself. And uh, it's weird. I'm telling you, it's a freaky thing. Like I said, I'm, I'm not a guy who has visions and dreams. I know Christians who've had those kinds of things. I haven't had that. But I can tell you in the weirdest sort of way that I know him, that he's alive, that if you put a gun to my head right now and said, believe in Jesus or you die, I would say, pull the trigger. Isn't that weird? Why would I feel that way? It's so, you know what it's like? It's kind of like, when I had my first child, and they put my daughter into my arms, and I looked at this little wiggly thing, and my heart, it's like out of nothing came into existence love, and I, I had the thought, I'm willing to die for this kid right here. Like how, where did that come from? Like out of nowhere, suddenly like, I'll die for this baby right now. Like, it's like this weird dad switch flipped on. And that's how it was for me. I went from just kind of, oh, that's an interesting story, to I love Jesus. 
and he's the king, and he owns my life. And it was just a weird thing. And I think it's the fact, the only explanation I have, it's not because I was reasoned into the kingdom of God or argued in or pushed in, but it was more like Christ grabbed me and pulled me in because he's alive and he's still the king. And I, I share that because I know, I, I suspect some of us struggle. I, I uh, have my uh, conversation, I, I just read this conversation to you I had with my buddy on, on Facebook, but um, so anyway, this is my Australian acquaintance, and he said to me, uh, as you might know, I'm not a religious man myself, but I have very high regard for the values of Christianity. I said, well, the good shepherd may still track you down as he did me. He's known for doing that in surprising ways. My friend said, I think he's been trying to track me down for a few years. I have been resisting all the way. And I said, LOL. And then, (laughs) it's Facebook, it's Facebook. (laughs) Probably inappropriate response, but. I said, LOL, that's usually how it goes. I said, reminds me of the line from C.S. Lewis where C.S. Lewis said he was dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. My friend said, as long as the end result is not being behind bars. I said, well, I can't make any promises since some have ended up behind bars for him. But then again, that's always a risk when you say, not my will, but yours be done. And then that's when he asked me, may I ask when and what turned you to Christ? And I share that, I'll probably get unfriended now, but I share that, <laughs> I share that with you because I have a suspicion that for some of us here, that's our story. It's kind of my story. And it was one of a sense of resisting a pull and, and trying to make sense of that. You know, what is that? You know, what, what has God done in your life? What, what are the evidences he's put in your life? What, what are the grave clothes and the empty tomb that Jesus has shown you? What are the, the near misses and the things you were taught and the people who have been in your life that have been there? But, but it's just like I can't make that simple step. I want to try to find some way to make sense of this besides the easy answer, which is, He's alive, and he's Lord. And can you believe this? This is crazy. Think about this. What if Jesus is alive, and he loves you? Like you personally so much that he would pursue you so hotly. What if, it, what if it's true? I mean, you've tried all the, well, something else may be true, but what if this is true? Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, I, I just thank you for giving me a chance to talk about you to these people here. Thank you, Jesus, that you're alive. And I pray that, that Jesus, you would simply call people by name. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who's been on that same journey of wrestling and struggling, and, and Lord, we, we want to try every possible answer besides surrendering to you. There's got to be another door that'll open, and Lord, we've tried all the doors, and they're all locked, and there's more doors we could try, but Lord Jesus, I pray that we would just open our hearts to you, 
And I pray for, for those of us who know you, Jesus, that we would be bold to talk about you and trust that you are still speaking people's names today. And so, Lord, we ask, speak our names. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.